Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. Hello, I'm your host today, Judy Dusick, Executive Director of the Providence Heart Institute. We are back with Dr. Shafel Doshi, a cardiac electrophysiologist with Providence in Torrance, California. We are continuing our conversation on atrial fibrillation and specifically tackling the variety of treatments available for this condition. So if you haven't listened to our first episode, I encourage you to do so. Just search for atrial fibrillation under the Heart Matters podcast. Hello again, we appreciate uh, you coming back with us, Dr. Doshi. Before we get started, can you remind the audience of your background and the work you do at Providence? I'm a cardiac electrophysiologist by training, so we're electricians of the heart. So we manage electrical disorders of the heart, including what we call arrhythmias, where the heart beats too fast, heart beats too slow, heart beats irregularly. Uh, and so that could involve putting in pacemakers, putting in defibrillators, doing these procedures where we fix the arrhythmias called ablations and protecting people from stroke without requiring them to have blood thinners in these procedures we call left atrial appendage closure. We want to remind our audience that we have a previous episode of Heart Matters with Dr. Doshi and uh, Dr. Steve Compton. It helps to understand the basics of atrial, atrial fibrillation. Can you remind us quickly what atrial fibrillation is and how it affects you when you have it? Well, atrial fibrillation is a specific type of electrical short circuit of the heart. It's kind of like the fluorescent light bulb in the kitchen that just starts flickering. You know, your heart is an electrical organ. It only beats because of electricity, and it's supposed to be very steady, very controlled. And imagine suddenly, just like you walk downstairs and you see that light bulb flickering in the kitchen, you suddenly have a short circuit in the upper chamber of the heart called the atrium. And what that does is cause your heart to beat irregularly, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. And when we talk about symptoms, the people who really feel it do feel like their heart is out of rhythm uh, or they feel short of breath. Some people it's fatigue, like we mentioned. And for many people, there are no symptoms. Let's talk again about risk factors. So our, our audience is aware of who is more at risk for atrial fibrillation. The most common risk factor for AFib is just getting old. When people reach 70, it's almost 10% of the population. And the lifetime risk of anyone developing AFib over the age of 40 in their lifetime is one in four. So it becomes more and more common and as our population is aging, we're seeing more and more atrial fibrillation. Like I said, there's probably about 7 million people in the US who have this. And some of the things that can make it come about even sooner will be some things that we, we've often neglected, like a history of sleep apnea. People who don't sleep well, who don't breathe well at night, they're getting less oxygen uh, to their body and their heart, which can cause them to have an arrhythmia. The majority of people who have atrial fibrillation have a history of high blood pressure. So that can also promote developing these. So uh, when you think about some of those things that are other medical diagnosis, those can have an impact, but also stress and lifestyle can affect it. Uh, oftentimes when someone is over the age of 65 and they go for a routine procedure or a surgery, this distress from the procedure or surgery whether it's emotional or physical, it can put them into atrial fibrillation. 
We touched on treatments for AFib a bit in the last episode, but today we're taking a deeper dive into the different treatments available. I think the goal of these podcasts is to make sure patients, potential patients and care caretakers understand more about the symptoms to watch for. So to highlight the conditions we've discussed on these shows and to recognize if they might be at risk so they can make those lifestyle changes or take interventional steps to prevent a larger issue developing. And we want them to feel hopeful about getting these conditions diagnosed and treated so they can live a better life. To start, do all the types of AFib require medical intervention? All types of AFib require some type of medical attention. We can really simplify it for the audience. There's basically two concepts when it comes to treating AFib. One is protect you from any potential danger of AFib, and that really is the danger of having a blood clot and a stroke, so that's number one. And number two is, if you don't feel good, can we make you feel better? That's it. So regardless of how bad you feel, everyone has a risk of stroke with AFib, whether you feel it or you don't feel it. So for everyone, the first thing we want to do is protect you from the risk of stroke or lower that risk. And then for those people who don't feel good, we say, are there things we can do to try to fix this so you don't feel the AFib, your heart is in normal rhythm? For those people who don't feel it at all, we may not even want to try to fix it because you can't make someone who feels good feel better. Dr. Doshi, in your, in your expertise, what is the most common first step in evaluation and treatment? So the first step in treating patients after you've made a diagnosis that they have atrial fibrillation usually is to get them started on something to protect them from stroke. So get them started typically on a blood thinner. Okay, and then the second step is do a bunch of different tests to assess their heart. So we'll do an ultrasound of their heart, see how it's squeezing, see how the valves are. Some people may do a monitor so they can see how much AFib they're having. Is it all the time? Is it some of the time? Can they feel it? Some people may need to get a stress test to see if they have any blockages. Although blockages don't commonly cause AFib, these are some of the common tests that are done. Is medical intervention always involved when AFib is diagnosed? Usually when we diagnose atrial fibrillation, it does involve some sort of medical intervention because at the end of the day, my number one job is to protect you from stroke. And unless we intervene and get you started on something to protect you from stroke, we haven't done you any favors. So that's usually the first step. Do genetics, race, or ethnicity play a role in AFib at all? There are some genetic components to AFib. Sometimes you hear of families where everyone had AFib in their 40s or 30s. But most of the AFib we see is when people are older. So when you say, well, my father had AFib and he was 82, and my mother had it at 74, that's probably not genetic and just related to aging. But if there are a lot of young people in the family that had it, then there may be something there. So we learned in our last episode that the three types of AFib are paroxysmal and persistent and long-standing persistent. With paroxysmal being more episodic in nature and persistent, being like the name says, persistent and ongoing. When you're diagnosing a patient, are you able to identify which type they have at the onset? Or is that something that happens over time if they aren't responding to certain treatments? So sometimes we tend to complicate atrial fibrillation, give it fancy terms like, is it paroxysmal? Is it permanent? Is it persistent? But we want to simplify it for the viewer. So either you're having AFib all the time or you're having it some of the time. And the less AFib you have, generally, the easier it is to fix. And so let's say you find a patient who's in AFib, 
you won't know what kind of AFib they have unless you do a monitor and see what happens over a week or two weeks. They may be in AFib for 48 hours, and you may say they're in it permanently, but the third day they may be in normal rhythm. And then we realize they're the type that comes and goes. So we can only get to these diagnoses after we've done multiple EKGs, multiple different ways of monitoring you over time. But at the end of the day, our treatments are not vastly different. And what types of medications are usually prescribed for AFib patients? Are these usually short-term treatments, or will they be taking them long-term or possibly for the remainder of their life? So when we think about medications, we have to go back to the original concept, two problems with AFib. One is protecting you from stroke, and the other one is making you feel better if you don't feel well. So protecting you from stroke typically always involves a blood thinner on day one. We can always decide whether it's a right choice long-term, but at least for the short-term, we get you on something to reduce the chance of a blood clot. Now, some people may not be good candidates for blood thinners where you say, look, I'm okay with putting grandma on a blood thinner for a couple of weeks, but she's almost falling every day. She's had multiple bleeds. We can't keep her on this long term. And then we have to look for other options, which we can talk about. Now, when it comes to trying to feel better, we also have medicines that can reduce the amount of AFib, but they're not perfect. They don't fix the problem. They can reduce the frequency of it so people don't feel as bad as often. But ultimately, if we want to fix the problem, there's really only one good way to fix it, and that's also with a procedure called ablation, which we can talk about. Do these medications usually have a lot of side effects, or are they a pretty successful management tool for people that take them? Any medication can have side effects. So I I think we tend to overthink the side effects. None of these medications have to be for the rest of your life, and most of these medications, the side effects are not permanent. So what I tell patients is, look, we're going to try you on something, you know, know, just to see if we can get you feeling better for the short term. And if you don't feel right and you're having some sort of side effect, we can always stop the medication and look at other options. So let's talk about surgical or minimally invasive procedures um, and devices that are used for treatments. When would you make the determination that a patient should have a surgical procedure or device implant over, let's just say, lifestyle changes or medication? So, you know, patients love the concept that if I change my lifestyle, will the AFib go away? And I tell them, look, once that light bulb in the kitchen starts flickering, you can do whatever you want. The flickering episode's not going to go away forever. There are certain things you can do. Maybe you can reduce the amount of caffeine, the amount of alcohol, maybe a little bit of stress in your life. But even when you do that, it's not going to eliminate AFib in general. It just makes it less frequent. But over time, that light bulb that's flickering is going to start flickering as it gets older, more episodes lasting longer. So we will always try in parallel to do lifestyle modification, get the patient healthier, get their sleep apnea treated. That can help us maintain success when we do other therapies. But those don't often fix the problem that's already happened. And when it comes to therapies, the good news is most of these Therapies that treat atrial fibrillation don't require surgery. We don't have to send them to the heart surgeon. Most of the time, if not all, we have techniques and technologies that allow electrophysiologists like myself, who are not surgeons, to do minimally invasive procedures through the vein and not having to do any kind of surgery so we can go in the heart uh, and fix the areas that are short-circuiting. Can you tell us the procedures that are most used and the ones you find most successful with patients on a long-term basis. As a, as a cardiac electrophysiologist, can you tell us more about the procedures you perform on patients and what 
should patients expect? The most common procedure that's performed for patients who have atrial fibrillation is a procedure that tries to fix the problem, and that's called ablation. Um, that's a procedure that's generally done under anesthesia, generally just a couple of hours. Most patients can go home the same day. And we can actually go into the heart through a vein, find the areas that are short-circuiting, and we can cauterize them. We can do it with heat. We can do it with freezing. Bottom line is there's some areas that are short-circuiting that shouldn't be firing in the first place. And these procedures have a remarkably high success rate if you choose the right patient and you have good uh, experience with these procedures. Then there's a whole other type of procedure which we're doing now much more commonly for those patients who just cannot take blood thinners. And that's a procedure where we can close the area where the blood clots come from so the patients can stay on a baby aspirin and not have to take a full blood thinner. And besides those two common procedures, sometimes patients who have atrial fibrillation may need pacemakers if their pulse gets too slow. These are fairly standard. But now we have pacemakers that are about the size of a vitamin capsule that can go in without surgery from the vein for patients who have slow heart rates in AFib. So the technology keeps evolving. Can you tell us more about the devices you use for keeping the heart in normal rhythm? Are there multiple devices used for this? Um, and do some work better for different patients? So, you know, in terms of what technology we have for actually trying to fix the AFib, keep them in normal rhythm, we use a general term called ablation. And that just means going into the heart, finding the areas that are short-circuiting, and cauterizing them. But we have different technologies. Some physicians have more experience using the heat and, and doing three-dimensional mapping of the heart. Some physicians have more, expense, uh, more experience with freezing, what we call cryo. At the end of the day, the study shows that both of these types of procedures work equally well. It really depends on the operator's experience. Um, if you have your first procedure and you simply need a certain amount of uh, your tissue ablated, they both work well. Uh, if you have to do more complex things like mapping the heart, then we tend to go more with heat. Uh, and in the next year, there's going to be groundbreaking new technology, which will be commercially available, called pulse field ablation, which is currently going clinical trials, already approved in Europe, which will allow us to do the procedure even faster and, and likely with more safety. We know that lifestyle changes can make a huge difference in prevention of heart disease overall, and AFib as well, um, such as not smoking, moderate exercise, eating healthy, maintaining a healthy weight. Are there any additional lifestyle changes that you ask patients to make if they are diagnosed with AFib? And honestly, are there, are there specific types of exercise that are typically safe for patients to engage in or especially risky um, when we're talking about atrial fibrillation? Yeah, you know, when someone has AFib, we still want them to be extremely healthy. So the wrong thing to do is tell people you can't go exercise, you just have to sit around because you have AFib because that doesn't help their overall body, right? So we tell people to exercise and just know that if a certain exercise puts you into AFib, then my job is to fix the AFib so you can do the exercise, right? And the worst case scenario you have AFib, you may not feel well, but it's not going to be dangerous as long as you're protected from stroke like we talked about. Now, at the end of the day, there, there are certain things that we as a field are realizing play an important role in development of AFib. And one of the biggest things is what we call sleep apnea. And a lot of it has to do also with weight. When people get more obese and more weight, their neck gets thicker. And then when they lay down to sleep, they snore a lot. And sometimes you even know skinny people that snore a lot uh, who will often stop breathing when they're sleeping. And their spouse will say, you know, sometimes he won't breathe for five seconds and then has a big snore and breathes. 
And we're realizing that this, what we call sleep apnea, has a profound effect on many diseases that uh, affect us because it's chronic deprivation of oxygen. You know, for eight hours a night when you're not, you know, working and you're sleeping, you're getting many periods of low oxygen, then that builds up over time and affects our organ, uh, all the different organs. And for, for the heart and arrhythmias, sleep apnea has been implicated as a really important uh, uh, disease to treat. So whenever someone's diagnosed with AFib, what we should be doing is every one of those patients should get some sort of at least routine home sleep study just to verify that they're not having sleep apnea. Uh, the other thing is, is really early treatment of hypertension and high blood pressure. And I think the biggest thing we're seeing now is that early treatment of atrial fibrillation leads to better outcomes. So what would happen in the old days is you have AFib, I'm your primary care physician, I'm going to put you on some meds and send you to the cardiologist next appointment in six months. Cardiologist sees the patient, oh, you have AFib, I'm going to send you to the electrician, like myself, and you'll see them in six months. And the studies have shown that early intervention and treatment within 30 days, 60 days, has a much better improvement and outcome uh, uh, for patients. Uh, so I think that's become a big focus now, is going straight to the patient saying, look, if I have AFib, I want to see the electrician of the heart so I can start getting treatment right away. If you could get patients to eliminate just one of these risk factors to make the most impact in prevention or reoccurrence, which would it be? I think the risk factors that vary uh, from area and region. So where I practice in Santa Monica, we have one of the lowest smoking rates in the world, less than 2%. But for cardiovascular disease, I think smoking is the one biggest thing, if I can just eliminate off the face of the planet, that would make the biggest impact on cardiovascular disease. Um, but, you know, I think the other thing that's played a big impact is obesity uh, and, and decreasing, you know, uh, the way we metabolize. Um, and so what you're seeing is a population of obesity, which leads to more diabetes, insulin resistance, sleep apnea. So if I can uh, kind of have our patient population live a healthier, more active lifestyle with more responsible eating uh, and keeping the sugars and everything under control, I think that would have a huge impact uh, after we eliminate smoking. Do you find it's sometimes difficult to encourage patients to exercise when they are having issues with their heart? Is there, like, is there a fear um, there that instead of helping um, that they'll trigger a heart attack or stroke or just not feel well? You know, that's a real challenge because I can understand if I'm a patient and every time I exercise, my heart goes out of whack and I feel miserable. And that's obviously going to limit that. Um, but that's the number one reason why they should get treated and get a procedure to fix it so they can exercise. But what I tell patients is don't be fearful of the exercise. Continue to exercise and let us work with you so we can fix the problem while you're trying to get yourself in shape. Are there programs where um, heart patients can work on losing weight or an exercise program uh, within the hospital or clinic? There are many programs that are available, depends on the region, depends on the hospital, where patients can do cardiac rehab, they can see dietitians, uh, they can go into exercise regimens. But I'll tell you, it's not that complicated in general. I mean, it's hard to do, but even if we could just cut down our caloric intake, just eat till we're not stuffed. You know, eat three-fourths three of a portion and get used to it, then cut down a little bit more. Start walking 30 minutes a day uh, and, and walk, start walking a few miles a day once you get better get our 10,000 steps in a day. Things like that, that I think will allow patients to get in better shape and start dropping calories, stop dropping their weight, you know, 
uh, all those things will make a difference. But for those that need a more structured approach, you will find that most uh, hospitals and clinics have some sort of mechanism to help patients get there. Can AFib be permanently reversed? Or will patients generally be managing AFib for the remainder of their lives if diagnosed? Certain parts of AFib can be reversed, but a certain part of AFib is from aging. So unless you can reverse aging, you're not going to be able to eliminate atrial fibrillation altogether. So we, we, we remind patients that sometimes AFib is like a wrinkle in the skin. And I know in California, every wrinkle needs Botox. But in reality, right, some of it is just part of aging. So as long as we can protect you from stroke and you have a good quality of life and you feel good, we become less concerned about the diagnoses, but making sure that we achieve the goals that you as a patient want. Should people wear a medical ID or carry a medical card to alert others they have AFib? Generally, we don't necessarily recommend patients to have medical alert bracelets and specific things for AFib. It's just like having another diagnosis. Generally, AFib patients are well controlled uh, once they get treatment, uh, whether it's with medications or whether it's with these procedures. And so um, I think it's important uh, for physicians or for healthcare providers to know if you're taking a blood thinner because that can impact some procedures that you may need if you need emergency surgery or something else. But generally, AFib is not, not a disorder that you need to wear a badge to let everybody know you have. What about barriers to care when it comes to AFib? Is this something you see people not getting tested or treated for because they don't have access to care or insurance? What happens if they notice symptoms and delay getting care? There are a couple of different barriers when we think about AFib. And, and remember, I told you the most dangerous part of AFib is a risk of stroke. And the way we best manage that in large masses of populations are with blood thinners. The problem is that these medications are not cheap. And for a Medicare patient, they can go anywhere from 70, 80 bucks a month to $300 a month. And so when you think about that kind of cost and the stress that puts, along with multiple other meds the patient may be on, this becomes a real issue for availability and accessibility for many patients to take the medication they need to reduce the risk of stroke. So that's a big issue. Also, there are limited electricians. Um, and so if you take a busy practice, for example, like ours, and we do 300, 400 AFib ablations a year, that's a big number. So two, 300 for one single physician is a big number, but there's 7 million people in this country who have AFib. And so not everyone is gonna have access to getting the procedure done. Um, so I think there are some socioeconomic challenges, there's some access to healthcare challenges, there's some availability of medication challenges, but with the multitude of different options that we have, such as procedures so they don't have to take blood thinners, uh, different types of blood thinners at different price points, uh, different medications for controlling the rhythm or different ablation procedures, if they can see the right physicians, we can usually tailor a therapy that suits that individual. Overall, can a person live a long life with atrial fibrillation? Most patients who have atrial fibrillation will lead a normal to long life. Um, what they probably would have lived at if they didn't have AFib, with two caveats. As long as they're on some strategy to reduce their risk of stroke, and as long as they are addressing some of those risk factors that cause the AFib, because those risk factors can cause other cardiovascular diseases too. So sometimes the AFib is, is a, is a wake-up call that I got to get myself together, get the rest of my health together. Um, and sometimes that really helps patients who are motivated because 
they suddenly get more focused on their own health. Can you tell us any patient success stories you've had that might help convince our listeners to make sure they make an appointment to get checked if they think they might be experiencing any of the symptoms we've discussed today? We have so many success stories with patients, and honestly, if we didn't, we wouldn't be so busy doing treatments for atrial fib. It's probably the, the fastest growing market in cardiology because as patients get older, we're seeing more and more atrial fibrillation, so more patients have it. And we know this statistically, when we try to fix the AFib, about three out of four times we're successful on the first try. So it depends on the patients you select, uh, but it has a huge impact on patients feeling better being able to get off drugs. And for those patients who are struggling taking blood thinners, being able to do a procedure, uh, uh, such as the Watchman, for example, where we can plug up the area where the blood clots come from and patients are able to come off the blood thinners, I'll tell you the quality of life improvement for those patients who are so stressed, who can't afford it or miss their medications or falling all the time, to then have protection from the risk of stroke to a similar level to the blood thinners, but then just be on a baby aspirin has been incredibly impressive. Dr. Doshi, it's been amazing talking to you and hearing everything um, that you've shared and through your experience um, as, a, as a physician and just taking care of so many patients um, with AFib. Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that makes you hopeful when it comes to AFib? A couple of things down the road that make me even more hopeful for AFib. I think as a community, we're getting increased awareness. Um, as a field, we're having technology that will allow us to fix people faster and safer. But there's also going to be a whole new class of drugs that potentially will allow blood thinning with less bleeding and more safety. There's always going to be patients who cannot take blood thinners, who are falling, who are bleeding, etc. But for the masses of patients that can take it, to have even safer blood thinners will make a huge impact. So as our population goes from 7 million AFib to 10 million AFib, uh, we're going to have more therapies to help these patients. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank <laughs> you.